Voice of Fintech. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voice of Fintech live speaker series. Today we're going to talk to Nena Sethi from Magic FinServe in New York. It's a company that provides emerging tech solutions to financial services firms, including buy and sell side firms and uh, enterprise data management firms. And uh, Darko Pilav, who is the head of digital asset in Switzerland, and uh, obviously a well-known company in the digital asset space. And Emily Raffo, who is a well-known speaker on the crypto and blockchain speaker circuit and event circuit in uh, Switzerland. And we're going to talk about her new book as well. So this is uh, going to be fun uh, discussion on the reality check, whether blockchain and digital assets and crypto uh, seize on the opportunity of acceleration of digitalization uh, during, uh, during the pandemic or not. We'll find out. And then we're going to be entertained by fabulous Irina Pak, who is a founder of um, More Than Classic and a first violin at Tonhalle in, uh, in Zurich. So. Uh, welcome and uh, looking forward. So, Lena, my first question is about uh, founders who sometimes they are in love with their tech and they think about tech first and the solution second, and they try to find the use case to fit the technology that they love. When you provide services to clients, uh, how does that work? What's your philosophy? Are you thinking about the solution first or technology first and then the use case or how does that work from your, your perspective? So many startups fail because they aren't able to switch gears fast enough uh, based on their client's feedback or the founder typically has you know, a very stubborn idea of what the problem is and fitting the tech into that problem. So at Magic, um, we've invested a lot of R&D in our AI and ML accelerators based on um, client conversations and data from clients. So in fact, our board evaluated several AI companies to acquire before we went to market, but we decided against it because I'd say anyone who works in this space will relate to how much customization is required adequately to address a use case after you close the deal or you, know, you do the fancy demo and sort of like wave this magic AI wand. Um, so it's really important to listen to make sure your product fits the challenge, um, both if you're shopping around for these technologies, as well as if you are a provider uh, like ourselves. Okay, great. And uh, well, talking about digital asset, maybe let's introduce a little bit to the beginners. What do you actually produce, right? I mean, and Nina mentioned, uh, you know, Daml, et cetera, the apps. Uh, what is that? And uh, how standardized is it and how does that interplay with uh, the existing uh, IT infrastructure of the banks that we have here and also, you know, competing blockchain, blockchain protocols? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Digital Asset is a um, product company. We are a technology provider. And one of our uh, main goals, and it is maybe it's, it sounds somewhat of a common trope, but our main goal is really to to uh, break down the silos when companies are cooperating or interacting with each other. Um, we've been seeing kind of, as everyone else, um, that the kind of those, those message-based interaction between applications and various use cases just kind of uh, uh, don't hold up anymore. And, and um, all those 
um, common things like like uh, expensive reconciliations are required, etc. So what we set out to do is um, come up with a way how we can um, capture um, kind of obligations and rights and workflows and, and things like that. So kind of this is the contract part of the, of the smart contract. How we can really um, capture those, codify them, and then also being able to execute them. Now, one important thing is though that um, what is very clear to us is that there isn't going to be one single um, winner in the infrastructure space. There is not going to be just um, um, Hyperledger Fabric or just Corda or just Ethereum or who, uh, or um, you can name any one of those. So what we set out to do is make sure that uh, whichever infrastructure you want to use, you can by, uh, by, by writing the code once in, in, in DAML, in the smart contract language that we created, and then you can run it on um, the various different infrastructures. And coming back to the uh, question before about how exactly to approach, how we approach uh, the interactions with customer. I fully agree with Mayna uh, regarding problem first. And this is also how we set out our product to be, that we explicitly tell to our customers, don't think about the technology. You need to first figure out how exactly um, does your use case work? How let's let's figure that out first, and then we'll go and uh, and uh, see which um, which underlying infrastructure uh, is the best one for you. So often people are coming at first with beginnings uh, with the questions like, um, what is the consensus algorithm that uh, I should be using here and there? And this is like, this is a completely wrong level of conversation in the beginning. This is this this something like this goes just. Um, very, very, um, uh, towards the very end. Now, this is just, of course, one part to the, to the story. If you have um, a use case that can run either on Ethereum or Fabric or whatever. So the next thing uh, that we are focusing on right now is um, allowing for true interoperability between infrastructures. And only then, when you have that, you can have kind of a virtual global network that where everyone can interact with everyone else. And this is kind of the, um, the, the, the holy grail uh, that, that uh, everyone would like to have. And uh, yeah, this is, this is the next target that, uh, that we are aiming at. Okay, understood. But obviously, you know, you're in Switzerland and I think you do work with a lot of incumbents, right? And uh, when I talk to incumbents, some of them are quite or have been quite skeptical. They're saying, look, we don't need blockchain for every little thing. It's been around for 20 years and uh, all we need to do is digitize. Now, but um, the enterprise blockchain applications are quite different from the kind of the, uh, the freestyle movement and the original philosophy of uh, being uh, running everything on decentralized uh, ledger, etc. So w where do you think are the pros and cons for banks that are, you know, maybe large banks like Credit Suisse and UBS using enterprise blockchain, um, where they can actually use it and uh, where you can help. You're absolutely right there. And actually, I must say that uh, there are a bunch of use cases that wouldn't even necessarily benefit significantly from a um, blockchain uh, approach or even a distributed approach. Uh, and by the way, this is also why we're making sure that demo also runs on a centralized database. You can just run it on, on SQL and still reap the benefits. Now, our idea there is though, that if you have 
kind of you are de-risking um, the first step if you go with uh, technology that people um, are comfortable with, with with a SQL database, and and uh, they can they can kind of test the waters with that. But people need to go there at their own pace uh, because you you can't force everyone uh, to to their luck, so to say. You, you talked about you know enterprise blockchain and the challenges and you know the Darko explained etc. But when we go back to the original roots of blockchain and you know the it's been it was a great buzzword let's say two years ago and last year was AI and uh, now I don't know where we are to be honest. So you know what do you think about uh, blockchain and uh, and its potential as a I'm not saying as a buzzword but as a trend. You know are, is there still a potential or has it lost some steam or, you know, if, are you still a believer? And if yes, why? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the, the problem is that we kind of thought and expected, you know, blockchain to save the world. And as we say in French, they was going to save the widow and the orphan, you know, but um, in the end, <laughs> uh, now we're kind of disappointed because we had this inflated, impossible expectations. But in the end, you know, I think it's it's still a cool technology that allows communities to organize themselves, and that in itself, itself, I think, is is still very cool. But it's not it's not a completely new idea, right? I mean, if you look, um, you know, at these um, these cooperative legal structures, you know, in France we use that quite a lot. It's it's kind of a, an enterprise that it that is jointly owned by by its stakeholders. So this is the, this is the type of things that that blockchain embodies, but in is just automated and disintermediated. So I think that, you know, maybe some people had crazy expectations, but in terms of doing that, of allowing people, you know, to get together and, you know, create their own organizations uh, and automate certain actions, disintermediate certain actions, I think this is, it is, it can still do that. And that is still super cool. And for example, if you look at, at local currencies, so this is something that I've really looked at. Um, it's not a huge thing, right? If you look at the Le Mans in Switzerland or the time dollar in, uh, in, in the US, um, if you look at the VIR also in Switzerland. Um, so these local currencies are really cool citizen initiatives. And I think, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrencies are in the continuity of that. I don't think, you know, the, this has to be a behemoth of, uh, you know, worth billions of dollars. I think it can just be, you know, a technology that allows communities to create, you know, organizations to fit their needs and new currencies that fit their needs, needs that are unmet with uh, the national currencies. And I think that's already more than enough. Right, right. And in your book, you also talk about mobile money and Libra and the kind of commitment to fight the pro uh, poverty. And basically, that also leads to one of the use cases or the themes behind this digital or decentralized economy and, uh, and, th and blockchain, which is uh, improving financial inclusion. So how does that improve financial inclusion and why is it important? Well, um, I think financial inclusion is hugely, hugely important um, just because, you know, financial exclusion keeps poor people poor. And that's that's a huge problem because, you know, if you don't have access to a bank account, you know, obviously you don't have access to digital money, for example. So what does that mean? 
it means that you have to store all your wealth, I mean, all your wealth, <laughs> your wealth in cash, which, you know, kind of puts you in danger of theft or whatever. So puts your person in danger, but also puts, you know, your wealth in danger. Because the problem is obviously that the countries that are the most touched by financial exclusion are the countries that are also touched by, you know, uh, huge uh, inflationary episodes. So it's the people who, you know, can the least afford it, who have to um, you know, go through the consequences of inflation. So that's you know, already one huge thing of, of financial ex exclusion. But also you know, people who don't have access to the banking system, the financial system, don't have access to credit. And you know, credit is a huge, uh, in French, it's a social elevator. 